Welcome to the SeaWorld, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about archival collections. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an objects conservator in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And today we've got a special guest host. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Smith. I'm the Conservation Studio Manager for the Collections Care Team at the UK Parliamentary Archives. Oh, Ooh, that's one really big title. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, no problem at all. Right, so just before we crack on with the show, I just want to do a brief piece of news, which is that uh, Icon has revised <gasps> its uh, recommended entry-level conservator salary. What? Yeah, because the last one, the last guidelines were from 2014, uh, and it's the one that we've seen on all the emails saying mm-hmm. that the recommended minimum is £24,648. Mm-hmm. But now that's gone up to £27,108 because inflation. Because inflation. Yes. Excellent news. Yes. So let's see if we can make that happen and we can convince people to actually pay us a bit more money because they should. But yeah, I'm really glad to see this and I'm super duper happy that Icon has done that. Uh, cannot express that enough that how happy I am about seeing that. Thanks, Icon. Yeah. But right, let's crack on with the actual episode. Okay, Chloe, I'm looking at you because this yeah, episode yeah. is your fault. <laughs> yeah, no, fault. I've just looked at your <laughs> it was uh, a great amazing... Idea amazing spider diagram that you normally you normally have and uh she's written genuinely whatever chloe has planned that's not the full thing <laughs> yeah. it's just one of the things that's it's one of the she things told me <laughs> true well so i want to talk about um various of the issues surrounding the conservation of archives but also the different relationships that conservators can have with archives so For example, my experience of working with archives in the past, as in my previous two job roles, have been a conservator in a collection, a museum collection, but there's also been an archive at the institution Mm -hmm. that I have been peripherally, peripherally, (laughs) peripherally uh, responsible for, but not really had any jurisdiction over. Yeah. So those sorts of relationships, as well as the kind of issues that one normally finds in archives and Mm -hmm. the different skills that you build whilst working in an archive. And also, it'd be great to hear a bit about your experience. I mean, just to kind of build on what you just said, Chloe, like my current place of work is the first place where uh, we've got an archive and uh, an archivist. So I've not really worked very closely with archival collections until I had this job. So previously, I'm trying to think of the different institutions I've been at. So some of them, I mean, most museums will look after some amount of paper. Mm-hmm. Like that's just natural. But that's not necessarily the same as having an archive with an archivist, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So all museums look after some paper, but some have an archive collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is slightly different. And here, here we get into definition territory in a bit. But I also worked somewhere where, which had, a, had its own library which was very different because it was a working library, which is different from an archive. Yeah, I'm going to need those definitions. <laughs> well, I've got one. Yes, yes please. go on. In rootling around to get ready for this, even though most of my professional career has been in library or archives, I thought, ooh, if you're going to ask me to define it, I better look it up. Oh, yeah. Go and on. actually, the US National Archives website had a really good, pretty succinct definition, which oh, is that they're collections of firsthand facts data mm-hmm. and evidence in the form of letters, reports, notes, memos, photographs, and other primary sources. Mm-hmm. And more and more these days, those sources are both physical and digital, either in surrogate form or born digital form. And that's absolutely the case that I found in all of the places that I've worked. And it illustrates that actually what you were just discussing is that archives can exist in and of themselves, but they can also be partners in other types of organizations like galleries, museums, libraries, or corporations. One of the things that I found by starting to look into, okay, so what are the definitions here, was that archives kind of look after the more unpublished materials uh, versus libraries Mm -hmm. who look after published materials. So books, things Ah. you can buy, as for archives that's based more around donations or stuff that's being generated by the organisation itself. And it's, it's stuff that's not published as such. Like they exist in writing, but that's not the same thing as publishing something. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not really 
for commercial consumption, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From a research perspective, it's about primary sources versus secondary yes. sources. So as you said, the archive holds the letter that's being read or the data that be, has been produced, whereas the library holds the book that was written about that correspondence or that research, etc. Yes, exactly. And then to add some further complication to this, where I work now, it's, a, it's an archive and a local studies library. And then my question mm -hmm. to my archivist was... <laughs> So where does the local studies library sit in this? Because that's not a regular library then. Mm -hmm. And no. So the local studies library, they kind of put the archive in context. So they have the kind of books written about the archival material. And and again, local studies is what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. It is very local to the area and the archive. It's very specific to that. Yeah. But it's kind of the research that comes out of the data that's in the archive. So they, they, they tend to go together. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of like Archives Plus. It's like yeah. Archives with a bit extra. And maybe it grows out of how the, that material, the paper and the archive material and the library material is held because there's a consistency in the work you would need to do to it as a conservator or as somebody who's preserving it. So they physically sit together quite nicely. Yeah. So uh, I just thought that was really interesting that this, this kind of... Venn diagram going on here of, of things that exist together. But they all look after, let's say, paper collections, although that's not entirely true either, because it's actually much more than paper. <laughs> I mean, it's Absolutely. it's it's so fascinating, the stuff that you find in archives. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so varied. I have one question about libraries. Yes, go on. Are the objects, as it were, the books in libraries, considered ephemeral or disposable? Can they be used, damaged, and disposed of Absolutely. in yes. the way that archive yes, material yes for can't books. be. Yes, for books. Some places have uh, rare book collections mm -hmm. and those obviously aren't disposable in that yes. way. Yes. So then you, you then you go into like specialist collections mm -hmm. within libraries, which is making it a bit more complicated. But sometimes archives <laughs> also have, have really rare books. So yes. there's, there, there's some overlap in the kinds of things that you can find, but mm -hmm. it tends to be that archives have unique material that is not available in yes. any other form and that you thus also can't borrow like you can a book. Uh -huh. You have to look at the material on site mm -hmm. uh, and usually under supervision uh, as opposed to a library where you can check out a book and you can yeah. go home and read it in the bath if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, but there you go. Would you agree with those definitions? Yeah, I would. And, you know, as conservators, we are encouraged to think about life of objects. And so the question about libraries disposing of books, that tends to be the default, but then you build upon that. What is the importance of that book? Yes, there might have been thousands of editions of that, but if it was a primary source material for another author, then that imbues a special aspect to that book. And therefore mm -hmm. it might not be part of that sifting process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has it been scribbled in by well, some yeah. famous rock star or something? Yeah, because I was going to say that Indeed. actually some of the reason that we keep some books in our archive mm -hmm. is in fact that it belonged to one of the original curators. It has his oh. book plate in it, his notes uh -huh. uh, and all that stuff that kind of builds more of an idea of who he was as a person. Right. So that kind of makes that more personal. And his professional um, experience as well. Exactly. So the Courtauld has a library and within mm. their library they have special collections and one of the Cambridge spies who was an art expert whose name is escaping me at the moment they hold his collection because it was his it was his primary and secondary source material for his art historian work mm. so they, they probably wouldn't break up that collection because of the fact that it was put together by one particular person yeah uh, even though the books within it they would be able to get a hold of in many different ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoy the kind of stuff that ends up coming into archives, for example, because it's all the kind of stuff that we can, I guess we think of as nice bits of paper. So it's, uh -huh. you know, like the official documents and it's the handwritten letters and it's someone's birth certificate. And like, it's, it's all those things. And it's the photographs, the family photograph, the fo photo of a soldier before it goes off to war. It's all of those things. But then it's also stuff like, posters and it's a cassette tape with a recording on it that's really important and it can be a videotape or cellulose nitrate film <laughs> uh. <laughs> i have a lot of interesting things uh, in relation to that sort of thing that we can uh well start talking about now actually as, i guess yeah, yeah, if you like. <laughs> um so in my my archive the archive that's situated in my museum we're trying to change the relationship with collecting so in the boxes of previously collected things, you can find all sorts of things like 
balloons and badges and Ooh, there was we, we found a, a balloon biscuit. recently oh god was it crispy uh no it was sticky oh anyway um <laughs> and things like posters are now we are now trying to make them all collections so oh. trying to change our relationship with the kinds of things so if an if a, a collection comes in archives will have their pick and collections will have their pick and obviously the relationship will be recorded mm. but in terms of storage and jurisdiction and use particularly which is something i'm really interested in it will be decided on the appropriateness of each mm. location i suppose end location will be decided on mm-hmm. how does it work at the parliamentary archives The collections are kept by the person or the entity that created it. So all of our cataloging runs in that way, but also the way we manage it from a physical standpoint. So we currently, and this may change in the future with quite a big project that's coming along called Restoration and Renewal, um, we do keep those collections together and all that material. And the only time that anything is extracted is depending on the size So the actual storage of our archives, and this is public knowledge because people can come on tours, is quite a library style. So um, not very deep shelves, et cetera, et cetera. But if anything doesn't fit on those shelves, then it tends to be stored somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But it's still cataloged as part of that person's collection that Mm -hmm. donated it, if that makes sense. It does. And the parliamentary... The parliamentary archives, we quite often get asked, oh, so you have the prime minister's papers. Well, it's actually the business of parliament itself, which is run through committees and the two houses, etc. So our archives are made up of primarily two sections, which is House of Lords, House of Commons, and then the working papers of the various entities within those two houses along with the administration of running parliament as well. It is an enormous amount of paper. They say we have over 4 million items, but what What? that really means is an item could be several hundred pages of paper. So we don't actually know, like a lot of archives, exactly how many items we have. Mm -hmm. We, We know that we have approximately 4 million units of things that people can look at. That's amazing. I think that's one of the challenges in archives is that it can it can very quickly get quite overwhelming in terms of being a conservator and managing that collection and doing the best for the most for that many items. What other materials do you have other than papers? So at Parliament, we actually have multiple what we call heritage teams. Mm-hmm. So there are, there's a team who looks after what would be called all the works of art. Um, We have a team who looks after interiors, so they look at textiles and furniture, etc. But within the archives, in addition to the paper and parchment Mm -hmm. we look after, we quite often have odd things that have come to us. So dispatch boxes. Yeah. So those are the boxes that carry the official documents. We have a few um, of those in my museum. For people who... They're very exciting. But that's where we cross the boundary, Mm -hmm. because technically those aren't parliamentary objects although they serve a function Mm -hmm. or we have some of my favorite things because we did a huge survey recently some of the favorite things we found was we have a sword which was part of the ceremony (laughs) of parliament (laughs) we have a tricorn hat we have a division bell (laughs) and you wouldn't think of that as being part of the archives you think of paper and parchment Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and more kind of flat things or bound things but we do have those almost because we were the default. We have a storage area. The mm-hmm. other teams yeah, don't yeah, really yeah. have a huge amount of storage. So if they want it kept safe and it was given by a particular person as part of a collection, then, of course, we would have custody of that item. We also have a gargoyle. Oh, my God. We've got a wee one. Yeah, Aww. he's very cute. <laughs> I imagine that means you, your conservation teams work quite closely together or the, the the communication between the teams is quite uh um efficient efficient yeah 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 comprehensive yeah we do no we do and because we're in the building we're in mm-hmm. we do have to work together quite a bit at very short notice it's great some of the like oddly three-dimensional things that you mm-hmm. find. so you mentioned balloons which we found the other week oh yeah it, it was one from like the local library celebration of some sort like they'd had like special balloons printed uh, for like but, oh yeah that, let's put it in a box that'll last forever <laughs> <laughs> it, it does not <laughs> 
it it is one of those things that brings conservators together across yes, all of our material is. sets because people by default think archives are books and and, and pieces of paper and mm-hmm. parchment etc but we all have I have always considered myself more of an objects conservator, and it just happens to be that my objects are pieces of paper and books. That's really interesting. I have a love-hate relationship with paper in that I like paper and I would like to help paper, Mm -hmm. but I also don't know what to do. And that (laughs) that stresses me out because I would like to know enough to be able to be helpful. But I mean, that's that's another thing, because I I suppose I'm the only conservator they've got, and I don't really do paper, which sucks for archives. So I I can help in a kind of advisory mm-hmm. way and I can give them ideas of how to better store things or and how to minimize handling damage, maybe mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. But to actually mend things is taking things a little bit further. And I have tried mm-hmm. with some success, but it's not good. Like it's not the what, standard that you're used yeah, to. Yeah, it's not what I would like to show mm-hmm. off. Like <laughs> it's like this is passable, but only passable. And that makes me sad. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. something that I'm really interested in, the conservation of archives, is the decisions that we must make in order for the archive to be used appropriately. Jenny, you were just saying that you've had to make repairs because that's the purpose. But that, I imagine, is so that the thing can be used. Yeah, it's to prevent Mm -hmm. further loss, really. Like the damage is already catastrophic in that a thing has fallen off. Yes. If you see what I mean. So it needs to be stuck together because otherwise it will be permanently Mm -hmm. lost. And that's the problem. And people need to keep using this. Mm -hmm. And it's it's especially one of those things where it's like, this is our most popular book. People always fold this page out, which is the problem. Yeah. Uh, And then you've, you've kind of got to go the extra mile and like, oh God, I guess I'll get the Japanese tissue out. Mm, Please be okay. (laughs) And then, I mean... What I love about working with archivists is that no one says, let's just tape it together. Because <laughs> everyone knows the tape is evil and we're all on board with that. Tape which, is me- evil. which means that we never do that. <laughs> a lot of the time it's just to facilitate continued use and to prevent yes. the complete loss. Mm-hmm. So that's when I will and that's- stretch to mm-hmm. intervening. And that's one of the unique points about an archive is it is there to be used yes. and the items are there to be accessible. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I actually really love about it is that it's not there to just sit on a shelf. It's there to be used or to be able to be used. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's a working collection. Reference to our touchy-feely episode of last season. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So I think my specific, uh, I have two kind of specific areas of of interest with this. Megan, when you've been conserving a piece of archive Mm -hmm. or an an archive uh, object. Item. Item, sorry. An archive item. Have you have you realised that you've been making specific decisions differently based on as what you know will happen to it? So essentially, I guess I mean conserving something more thoroughly than you would normally do because you know it's going to be manhandled. Absolutely. And it falls into a number of categories. So I spent some time at the National Archives in their digitization team. Mm-hmm. And there were some really very strict time lines that we needed to hit to get through the vast bulk of preparing Mm -hmm. material for imaging. And so the decisions we made were very, very different than what I do now when I'm preparing an item for an exhibition or for a loan. So I would say that's conservation plus in that you want it to be as, I suppose, pristine Mm -hmm. and presentable as you can make it, even if it's an archive item. Whereas if you're getting something ready to go through an imaging process, you are about stabilizing and that's where your ethics really come into play about mm-hmm. decision making and and how interventive you're going to be. Also in archives, if you are making things accessible to a researcher, it might be that you're doing some surface cleaning that is literally to be touch clean. You're not going the full cleaning route. And that also means that you're spending your time in different ways. So um, exhibition preparation is going to be the most time intensive versus, you know, servicing the search room on a daily basis will will take up more time, but you'll be getting through more items that you're preparing. So we get through a lot of chemical sponge (laughs) in our studios. (laughs) So the other type of question, and I, I think this this is it sparks from a really specific example. But I think there's probably um, in archives quite a lot of things that could be used as examples as well. So in my museum archive, I have on a couple of occasions encountered uncut book pages. From an object's point of view, 
I would obviously keep them uncut because that's the condition of the object. But there, mm-hmm. I have faced opinions before that they should be cut and the book be used. Because the book is made to because be read. Because the book is made to be read. Indeed. So every organization I've worked at has had to deal with this. And I'm usually mm-hmm. the person that gets asked to cut the pages. Um, so I take a steer in terms of how their collections uh-huh. are used. But the middle ground that I have come to, and this was after a really good natter with a friend who worked as a rare books librarian, and I've taken on what her recommendation was, that if that book is uncut and it exists anywhere else in the locality in a cut version, Mm -hmm. then send the person to that organization to read it already open. Yeah. If that book does not exist anywhere local to you in an accessible way, then you cut the pages and you mark who and when opened the pages in pencil in the gutter of the page. And don't cut the pages that the researcher doesn't actually need to consult. So it's a very, it's a lot of differential, uh, answering differential questions and, and only going so far. But I'm a book reader. I do understand the format of a book is meant mm-hmm. to be read. But if you've got a rare first edition and it's not been cut open, and somebody just wants to read it because they happen to be at that organization, Mm -hmm. then I think it's worth investigating who else has that book for them to read. I very much like this answer. Yeah, this is this is this. uh, It kind of agrees with some of the things that I have. I mean, not work related, but argued with my partner about who's into like fine (laughs) press things. (laughs) Who has said, yeah, but it's a book. It's meant to be. Yeah, but no, but these these considerations, (laughs) ethics. So thank uh, you very much. I like that answer. Yeah, that was a very good answer. Um, <laughs> along a similar vein, I had a really interesting question from someone who was not archivist. So they had, this was very specifically a military uh, archive, and they had flight mm-hmm. maps that had been mm-hmm. bundled together in a specific shape and taped in mm-hmm. to retain that shape oh. because that's that's how they used it in the plane because they, they could they can't unfold a massive map in a plane they can't i so, never considered that so they'd taped it to be a specific shape mm-hmm. so that's how it was used mm-hmm. and their question to me was what if we want to open them and initially i th- i misunderstood this as a problem with the tape was the tape decaying was it falling off yeah how do mm-hmm. you best retain retain the tape for once mm-hmm. uh, or retain the mm-hmm. shape of it without the tape but in actual fact they were kind of asking that like, researchers want to see the full map so do they then unfold it knowing that he can probably never get it back together mm. in the shape that it was actually used in and i mean my gut instinct was no you don't open it like i kind of what that's the life of the object yeah what possible Mm. reason would you have to open it because actually there would be nothing there of interest because the interesting bit is the bit you see yeah but i just thought no like that the bundle is surely the thing that's important Mm -hmm. because that's its use Mm -hmm. but you know yeah and and what what extra information are they possibly going to find from that map i'm sure there are other contemporary maps to that that would show them what they want to know and your example is exactly about how that item was used and i would i would advocate that that isn't opened yeah this is where technology can really help us so Mm. there there's now scanning techniques that will map the folding structures of that map so it can be recorded and Mm -hmm. then if that's properly recorded the possibility of opening that map to then be able to close it again does exist so i think that would shift that decision making slightly but that tech that technology is in early days and it's expensive to do as well so it's not going to be something available to absolutely everybody yeah um there there is something called letter locking there's a conservator at MIT who's spearheading it. And it was before envelopes existed. So letters were folded in a particular format and security was built into that folding technique. And so there are letters that are still folded and sealed and researchers want to be able to see what's, what the content of those letters are. Oh. So scanning and virtual opening is helping the researchers access that content, but also keep the materiality mm-hmm. of those mm-hmm. letters or the folded maps, if it was to be used, yeah. um, in place. We live in a world where technology is helping us keep a format a material of a material item, but also letting us get to the content as well. And I think that's a really exciting part of our job. 
That is exciting. That is wonderful. Yeah. Particularly, I mean, personally, I when you were describing the fold, the letter locking and f- things that have never been read and stuff, I got goosebumps because of the never been read thing. That was the thing that fascinated me. But obviously, if you're just trying to read the letters of X to Y, you want to know what's in them. So it's really wonderful that we can appease both sides Do you as think well it, as keep it. Is that a similar technology to how they read uh, scrolls that are very tightly yes. rolled up. Yeah. Yep. I was thinking yep. of that example as well, but I didn't know whether to bring it up because that's another <laughs> that's another rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah, sorry. Okay, <laughs> no, no, okay. No. Abort, abort. <laughs> uh, can you think of any other examples of a similar type of decision-making that you've had to, that you've encountered in your experience? I think things like binding up manuscript material folios. So if you're binding up a series of letters into a volume, that changes the nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the, let- the letters can be protected whilst in that binding format, but it changes what it feels like for a researcher to then go through that material. Um, in the reverse, there's a there are many, many collections that have Asian books that were then taken out of their contemporary and local binding styles and were put into Western styles. And there is a whole ethical decision-making about do you if they need to be researched or if they are being damaged in a Western style book binding, should they be taken out of that binding? And they might be in very prestigious collections and put back to a more original binding because the nature of paper from Asia, it flows differently when you turn the pages. Um, the way the spine is held rigid is different than than in a Western binding. So in all of archives and libraries, you have things that have been changed in their format to suit the people who either own them or do research. And there's always this question of, is that the appropriate format for the item now, as opposed to what may have been an aesthetically driven decision previously? Oh, that is fascinating. That's so interesting, because it's... it. As, con- as conservators, we will always encounter the what is the most valuable history at what point do I what what do I take it back to basically mm. in, in a, what, what's in a the value you're trying to show? yeah the examples can also be in how the items were used so if you have research material that has subsequent student notes on the material the original material well if it was just student x what does it matter as a conservator you might be asked to clean off those annotations mm-hmm. and marks but if it was a very prominent scientist who, when they were studying something quite early on, decided to make their mark on the on mm-hmm. those archival items, mm. then that has a completely different meaning as well. So the decision making about what you're changing and what you're keeping can be very intricate and quite difficult. I hadn't considered actually the removal of annotations, but of course, because mm. you is there a concern that you don't you might not know the identity of the individual who made the annotations the identity or even the meaning yeah or even just the meaning so when you're starting with a collection you might be noticing that there are marks everywhere and not really realizing that there is a rhythm to it and later on you might realize that actually somebody who was doing research had specific marks they were making and if you've removed those marks you can be removing later interpretations Mm -hmm. of the use of that material so it can start off as just like a, a pencil tick mark. And later on, you find out, ooh, that was the original source material for that publication 20 years later. <laughs> so, yeah. Or post-it notes is a, a very modern issue we are all going to be dealing with, specifically in archives and libraries. So there's one particular collection that is a membership-based library, and they had a book returned after a particular person died. And the book was completely full of post-it notes, completely full of post-it notes, which from a conservation perspective, you don't want because the adhesive doesn't Mm -hmm. actually remove over time. It cross links and it and it beds into the paper. Um, But those post-it notes actually were a core part of a piece of writing that that author completed and is very well known for. And there was a very big debate about do we take these post-it notes out do we take the post? Do we document, remove the post-it notes, put barrier layers in, and put the post-it notes back Ooh. so that the adhesive cross-linking is stalled? And if you've got four hundred post-it we, notes, that's going to be a bit problematic. Yeah, 
and and that's going to affect that binding as mm. well yeah. because you're putting more bulk into the binding and the spine will be affected or do you just leave it as it is and the decision was was made uh, by somebody fairly senior i'm not going to name where this place was but they just took all the post-it notes out before it was documented oh and the book is available in many other places. It wasn't that it was the mm-hmm. content of that book. Actually, the important bit of that book was that it was source material for mm-hmm. a particular publication. Ooh. But the decision was made because this was a library and it's a book and subsequent people might want to read that book. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's Life of the object. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And it is all about context, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. Yep. But post-it notes, we're, you know, we laugh at each other saying tape is evil. Post-it notes are the next tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've removed post-it notes from all of the conservation studio at Parliament. We had a, a, a packet of them sitting there and somebody wrote on it, tore it off and stuck it, stuck it on a reverse cough leather binding. No. So there are no post-it notes in the conservation studios at parliament you have been on your rampage (laughs) you have purged well it it wasn't it wasn't a conservator who did it it was just somebody thought oh i need to leave a note there's a post note and then put it on the item yeah no but going back to the example of people having written in the margins yeah yeah. um, the reactions to the primary material post-it notes are now those new marginalia And from a conservation perspective, it's probably a really good MA project or a PhD project for uh, an emerging conservator because we are going to have to deal with post-it notes. I hope somebody's written that down somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of things in the margins, it's sometimes they are the, the thing that something gets known for. It's like the... Mm-hmm. Um, chicken with the trousers that was popular on social media. You <laughs> what? You're looking at me like you've never heard of this. <laughs> what are you talking about? No, but like, I've not heard of this either. Uh, that's chicken that's the chicken with the trousers. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, I'm sorry. The reason I, I'm laughing is because of my hand gestures. I can't. <laughs> no one can see except me. I, I'm literally going to have to Google this now. Entertain yourself. Um, oh, so it. Okay. Oh, no. he's wearing trousers. <laughs> right, so, okay, yeah, so I found it. I found it. Uh, and it's Merle, so the Museum of English Rural Life that tweeted one of their oh, yes. lovely we love them. which has We love them. One of them has uh, a doodle of a chicken wearing some trousers, <laughs> which was yeah. which went viral last year. Like it, it was it was huge because people just loved it. it like it added uh, so much character to 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 this document, <laughs> and so sometimes mm-hmm. it's the actual annotations or doodles in the margins that yeah. make a document, for lack of a better word, famous. Even mm-hmm. though that's not the actual content of them, it might be why mm-hmm. pe- people know that you have that piece of yeah. piece of paper. That's also important because I, I can't tell you how many people don't know that archives exist, for yeah, example. Yeah. Because museums are a lot more high profile than archives often. Mm-hmm. People might know of the National Archive or like the British Library. Like they'll know like mm-hmm. the really, really huge, mm-hmm. huge places, but not everything has the same level of fame. And people might not know that they can go do their family research in like a local archive and that sort of thing. Like, the, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So sometimes this is actually generally helpful. Like share these weird things. Yeah. If, you, if you find them, you should share them. They're amazing. Right, the wonderful cat paw prints on yes like that on uh my yes yes that was a that was a recent one wasn't it yeah that was very good delightful so anyway chicken trousers were a real thing and you both doubted me <laughs> <laughs> sorry please carry on i think there are some big themes that are probably following along from society so archives certainly ours it's such masculine history Mm -hmm. so male oriented and that's you know due to the the nature of of parliament Mm -hmm. um up until today but i also wonder in working with archives if the lack of female voices has to do with some of the materiality of archives so you know there's always been an economic disparity between the income um and the money that men have versus women. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder if a female-centric archive's existence is more perilous because the material they would have used would have been less robust. So I'm thinking about a collection we recently took in, which was from the American War of Independence. And it's stunningly beautiful paper, just wonderful handmade paper. And I do wonder if it was a woman who was documenting what was going on, if 
the resources available to her would have been um, as robust and as wonderful. And therefore, those voices haven't lasted as well because just the material available to them yeah. hasn't been as robust. Yeah, um, and point. I've also noticed a trend in archives that feminist-oriented catalogers have been going in and updating catalogs from the traditional Mrs. Mrs. Joe blogs yes. to actually assigning women's names to them in the archives so that people who are doing research can find the women themselves as, a, as opposed to being a proxy for men. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it's definitely, I, I think things are changing definitely obviously in society which is essential um but in museums as well i think we're becoming more aware of people's identities and voices that aren't heard and stories that aren't heard for the the various historical pr reasons of prejudice can i take a moment just to give a shout out i, I don't know how to kind of work work this into a discussion because i don't know what they're doing at the moment but i just want to use this as an opportunity to shout out to glasgow women's library oh yeah um that's true mm -hmm. I visited them in 2017 and the work they were doing is brilliant. So that's um, is the only accredited museum in the UK dedicated to women's lives, histories and achievements. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, you should definitely have a look at them. Yeah. And I was also thinking that the new Queerseum is establishing yes. a, a LGBT plus uh, archive as well as part of their collecting oh, policy. Excellent. So, you know, there are all these forces that work here mm -hmm. where we're, we're really trying to diversify the, the voices and I absolutely agree with you that that's a great idea that conservatives can help highlight these things mm -hmm. seeing as we spend a lot of time with some of these items you yeah know? and I, I did see uh, on Twitter the the kind of proactive approach of really defining that these are women in their own right and they they're not the property of their husbands mm -hmm. uh, yep. you know it's it's not <laughs> it's not Mrs. Mrs. Frank anything it's <laughs> you know <laughs> Can I just chip in quickly about mm -hmm. random stuff that we found in archives yeah. that aren't necessarily paper? Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of boxes, like wooden boxes that hold documents mm -hmm. or did mm -hmm. used to hold documents or wax seals. Obviously, we've also got wax seals. Mm -hmm. that's, always, that's always fun. Uh -huh. And we've got this great carved wooden plaque. Uh, which has very intricate mm -hmm. writing on it. But, I mean, the actual thing is very three-dimensional because it's a it's a wooden plaque yeah. that's been very carefully painted. And at some point, that paint's going to start pinging off. I just know it. Uh, mm -hmm. But <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. And I do actually very much think that it belongs in our house because mm -hmm. it's a written document on mm, a plaque. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, the materials are different. It just happens yeah. to be on wood. Exactly. Yeah. So I've, I have two examples that can fit into that. So mm. the first one is we too have a plaque and it's the plaque that was held up for, I can't remember if it's the house, it's the MPs of the Lords to read out to swear an oath to the Queen. Oh, wow. And it, it clearly preceded the Queen. It must have existed during her father's reign because when we looked at it, there'd been a tiny piece of paper with Elizabeth I written on it and stuck on top of what must have been George's name, the oh, king's name. Wow. And so, again, it's a plaque, but it's a functional thing. Yeah. So it was held up so that the people could read it out before they signed their names in, in oath. Um, but it also showed the fact that either the timing of the ceremonies was rather quick and they didn't have time to make another plaque yeah. or they thought, actually this plaque works. We just need to change the name on top. Yeah. And so they just stuck a bit of paper on top of it. And that did for that ceremony. So being able to see the changing use of items is one of the joys of working in archives. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. That is good. The second um, example I have was when I was working at UCL in their special collections, and we were working on a scientist's collection that hadn't really had any conservation, preservation work done to it. And we were getting it ready for digitization. And it wasn't me. It was a colleague who was sitting one bench away from me. And part of this archive was this scientist's wallet. And so my fellow conservator, David, opened the wallet and just said very loudly, Ick! Okay. <laughs> so what? we all stopped what we were doing. Uh, naturally. We we were... <laughs> and within this wallet, there was, you know, the usual wallet stuff. There was some other interesting things. So he would carry around blank pieces of paper in which to capture um, interesting looking people's fingerprints because he was one of the early researchers in fingerprints. Wow. But in addition to this slightly unusual wallet 
contents was a very early bunion pad. What? Oh, what? So my fellow conservator, David, very carefully took this brown, brittle, fragile fold of paper out of this wallet and opened it up. And it was an early bunion pad. And we had a very robust ethical decision about, well, do we keep the bunion pad? (laughs) So clearly this scientist had issues with his feet, Uh which is mildly interesting. Yeah, But we did. We had a good robust discussion about the ethics of of this item and should it stay it you know as conservators it's not up to us to deaccession bits mm-hmm. of collection mm-hmm. that's somebody else's decision so we had to work out how to isolate this item from the rest of the wallet cuz long term wise early plastics would do further damage but those are the sorts of wonders that you encounter in collections and archives that's very unexpected <laughs> Is it, it's extremely specific, though, as well, isn't it? But it's it's of the same level of importance as, say, Frida Kahlo's medicines yeah. or yes. something. That was the it first example. It's yeah. fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating and repulsive at the yeah. same time. Yeah, yeah, but it tells you so much about the, the person and what that person mm-hmm. was going through and feeling from a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it makes them more human. Yeah. Mm. That's really Wonderful. cool. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> You say it was slight disgust. <laughs> well, it, to be honest, it's more about the concept of early plastics than bunions. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So what you've just discussed is very specifically uh, about a non-paper problem in an archive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things we've talked about so far in our discussion has been um, the ways that other materials can cause us problems like bunion pads or post-it notes or post-it post or post-it yes. notes well I th- actually so what would you say are the sort of the main big problems that you encounter day to day with the archive conservation problems iron gall ink is probably the biggest Ooh, yeah. uh, problem in archives it's so variable it really has to do with how that ink was made and at the time it was used so you can ha- you can have a collection of items that are robust and use and then suddenly you can tell that they used a different ink because the paper is vulnerable. So the actual chemical nature of iron gall ink is that it is acidic. There's a hydrolysis reaction that is circular and how it manifests is that it will etch its way into and through the paper. And any letters that are circular, um, eventually the middle of that letter will drop away. And it, it almost becomes lacy when mm, iron gully yeah. corrosion mm, is mm-hmm. extensive. And the, the treatments that we have available to us are not benign. You are intervening and you are usually introducing some level of moisture uh, when you are treating these items. Um, but you have to be very, very careful and you try and limit the damage that you know you are putting into this item um, for the longer term stability of it. So within an archive, you never quite know when you're going to come up or find an item that has been heavily affected by iron gulling corrosion. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, just the sheer numbers of of items in archives, it's not possible to just go through the whole collection Mm -hmm, and identify what might be vulnerable. Um, You have to be quite reactive to what researchers have been calling up or if you can discover a collection that's a bit more vulnerable, etc. But the nature is that we can only slow down the chemical reactions. We can never actually stop them. So eventually those collections will be damaged to the point where they aren't usable, which is when digitization comes in to help Mm us. So I think something else I wanted us to discuss was with a working collection, with a working archive, what can we do to prevent damage? I think the first point is that every organization who holds archives needs to have some type of handling advice in Mm -hmm. place, whether that's ad hoc in terms of the person who is supervising the search room being confident uh, and proactive about keeping watch of what's going on in the search room, the retrieval staff of the archive being aware that if they are collecting something to be consulted and they think, ooh, this looks rather delicate, not putting it in the search room ready for somebody to look at, but come and get the conservator and show it to them to find out Mm -hmm. whether it is particularly vulnerable. It's one of my favorite parts of the job is sticking my head into the search room and, and finding out what people are consulting. Because as a conservator, my focus is so much on the material that sometimes I don't actually know what 
the collections are about and mm-hmm. my way of finding out what people are interested in, but also being able to kind of bustle in in a matronly way. So I think handling um, mm-hmm. and all the the agents of deterioration that are related yeah. uh, to handling um, are, are such a concern. And my nature is that I want these things to be consulted. So if I need to be there while that researcher is using it and help them with the handling, then that's part of my job and I will do the handling for them. But then you can also get people in the search room who are overconfident and they think they know what they're doing. Um, And sometimes that overconfidence is more dangerous than Mm -hmm. people who aren't heavy archive users and are more hesitant and maybe willing to ask questions. So people who might um, have things hanging off tables, they'll lean on items. They're just, they're much more casual with the material. Mm -hmm. Yeah think that there's an inherent vulnerability um, with our items when people think they know what they're doing. And that can apply to archivists as well. I have just recently given handling training to um, the majority of the people in my museum. Very small museum, I have to say. It wasn't like hundreds <laughs> of hundreds of colleagues. And one of the things on my um, personal list is to give go down to the archive and probably off the back of this conversation, actually, and have a specific discussion with them. Not so much training, but discussion with them about what they need from conservation as handling advice and what that what they need to know in order to transfer to others. So one of the things I've found is that archivists that work in very small collections um, who don't have access to conservators, I think they worry about how to assess whether they should ask for funds to have collections conserved. So one of the things I did was there's a group of archivists, they're called the Pall Mall, Association of Pall Mall Archivists. So it's all the the clubs uh, along Pall Mall. And we did a little workshop on, so you think you need to hire a conservator um, and talk them through what they could do to prepare for a discussion with a conservator, mm-hmm. when they when they should reach out to conservator, when they should talk to senior management about a collection or an item that they're particularly concerned about, and how to work with a freelance conservator. So what, you know, to be able to, to ask, what is your rate, how to handle the relationship, how to communicate with the conservator, etc. Um, so I think archivists, want to do the best for their collections and but sometimes they're just afraid to reach out and talk to to conservators about what they could do for their for their collections that's a really good point thank you for adding that because they don't they don't get it during training and unless they've worked in a big no it's a good point organization with in-house conservators i think that would be a really daunting prospect yeah that's, that's really interesting yeah. yeah and it's interesting to me that the archivists don't get training on working with conservation or working with yeah seeking funding for that sort of thing because it kind of yeah it sort of says this you ha- now have all of the skills to to work with an archive collection and to sort of safeguard it for its use but not if it starts to fall apart uh, so so before we round off i think we should have a little chat about good resources to uh to, you know to look up uh, if you want to know a bit more uh, do you do you have any in mind so i have two they're a little bit off the wall um so the oh, first Henry. one and i'm sure <laughs> I'm sure I am like other conservators in that I listen to a lot of podcasts Mm -hmm. in addition to this one. Um, So there's one that's produced by the Kitchen Sisters, and they currently have a theme running called The Keepers. So it's all about archives, um, collections of a variety of materials and formats. And I love all the episodes, but I particularly love, and I would suggest starting with this one, is um, the episode about hip-hop and how hip-hop created an archive and found a home and how it's being maintained that's amazing so that's my first one (gasps) great tip and then the second thing i thought i would mention again because you guys are so good about being a positive advocate for self-care and self-awareness i thought the people who listen to your podcast would be really interested to know about the first book that really talks about introverted personality types And I think there is a concentrated population of introverts in the world of archives. So Susan Cain's writing helped me name, understand and start to articulate how I experience the world in terms of work and relationships. So her book called Quiet, 
the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking was a really great resource for me to start exploring this part of our society. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not conservation specific, but I think it's really relevant I to pe- us as I conservators. I love the notion of the podcast. I'm definitely going to go listen to mm-hmm. the episode. Yeah. So today we're talking about archives and I've found myself an archivist. Ruth, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Ruth Cummins and I'm the archivist at Rotherham Archives and Local Studies. So you are. Um, how did you become interested in archival materials? It was while I was at university. I did a history undergraduate degree mm-hmm. and um, as part of that we had to do work placement and I did work placement in the university archives. Um, so that's when I really got interested in working with sort of collections and archives because they had a fantastic collection there that was investigative psychology, um, which was, you know, murders and serial killers and all sorts of fascinating things. So I was like, well, this is amazing. Um, yeah. I must do this as a job. So your archive, she has a building with a museum, but you're a separate entities. Is that right? Yes. So we're all under the banner of sort of heritage services. Um, right. And uh, so I'm in the middle of the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a nice little search room in the court in what used to be the old courtyard of the building. Um, so we work very closely together, but we are sort of two separate collections. Okay. Like how much overlap is there in terms of like how much do you collaborate Quite a lot. We'll collaborate on things like exhibitions um, and things like that. But also when we have uh, sort of inquiries in the search room, if it's about something that we know the museum has something in the collections with or the museum has an inquirer, they might also cross-reference to archives. So it's really like a research room that, that all inquirers can use, both museum and archives. Out of curiosity, do you pull conservation resources at all? Uh, yes, we do. We have like a larger budget, which which is where the uh, conservation money sits. And then I'll buy my own boxes and my own acid-free envelopes and Melanex for photographs and things like that. But we'll share maybe some more general things like gloves. So how do you try to safeguard your collection on a day-to-day basis? Uh, on a day-to-day basis, it is obviously we monitor temperature and humidity. Things mm-hmm. are packaged in acid-free boxes, in acid-free envelopes, in Melanex. Then we have obviously proper handling procedures uh, to make sure that when obviously our inquirers are using them in the search room or when staff are using them it's all done correctly gloves with specific things like photographs not with regular paper who do you think you are lied to you um, <laughs> um so yeah that's pretty much our day to day and then um when we're putting things in exhibitions and stuff i will discuss with our conservator about light levels and things like that as well that sounds brilliant. And sometimes you do replicas and stuff like that. Yes. So most of the time, if we know something's going to be on sort of more longer term display, we will do um, a replica or we'll initially put the original on display so that people can see it for a little bit and then we'll, we'll swap out for a replica eventually. So how does your search room work? So people can just rock up and ask to see something or? Yep. So we have sort of two main strands. We have people that can come into the search room and they can order documents or most of the time they'll just come with a question and then we will give them documents to answer that question um, and then we also have a distance inquiry service so for people who uh, live further away or even internationally can ask us questions about um, Rotherham and we can answer them over email. Uh, in what way could conservators help you in your life as an archivist in terms of looking after things? Um, obviously they can always help with discussions about environmental monitoring, uh, light levels, display, things like that and then obviously um, longer term you know discussing and decisions about when maybe a document is too far gone that maybe the public shouldn't be looking at it anymore Mm. and should we be creating surrogates that the public look at rather than originals that kind of thing and then obviously fixing our not very well records as well yeah sure everyone has them everyone everyone has them we have them they're not very well but they'll be fine yeah so aside from some emergency remedial stuff every now and then it's obviously really important that people look at the originals right like that's part of the charm yeah oh definitely especially i you get an extra sense from the originals that you don't necessarily get from a copy um it does make it more special and obviously they've come to see the actual records themselves especially with things that maybe are more of a legal nature people are going to want to look at the originals things like that um even down to little kids if you show them a piece of paper with some information on from 1290 they'll go all right okay if you give them a deed from 1290 
they go insane like it blows their mind they're like <laughs> oh my god this is so old and you let me touch it and then that's how they get super interested in things so i always prefer the originals but I know that there is obviously sometimes when you're like for the safety and the security and the future preservation of the document, we need to look at surrogates and maybe it's that they can see the original but they can't handle it or touch it, things like that. Um, so I know sometimes, occasionally there's discussions out there about archivists hoarding documents and not letting people <laughs> look at the originals. We never do it just for fun, we do it because actually for the long-term preservation needs of the document. It needs to maybe not be handled anymore. Um, do you think archives need conservators? Yes, definitely. As I mean, as anyone knows, it's anything. The longer and the longer it's been around, and the older it gets, sometimes it needs a little bit of TLC and a little bit of care. And it's the same with paper. If we don't conserve and preserve these items, objects, whatever it doesn't matter whether it's a piece of paper or whether it's a museum object, they won't be around in the future. Um, and with archives it's incredibly important because these can be the basis for legal cases they can be a photograph of an ancestor that you've never seen before that you can have a real personal connection with it's probably one of the most important things we do there's sort of two strands that i was thinking the most important which is access and then preservation and conservation what is your favorite thing as a final thing to uh, about working with uh, archival collection honestly mm-hmm. i've always been a nosy person i think this is why i became an archivist which is i really like looking at stuff reading stuff me and one of our archives and local studies um, assistants refer to it as being historical gossips where we're like oh my god did you read that did you see that and it's reading people's letters i love it <laughs> like stuff i know that was never intended for an audience i love it uncovering secrets yes it's nice. all about that i love it historical Excellent. gossip thanks so much ruth Dear Jane, I'm a trainee conservator gaining my training outside of North America and Europe. My question is, given that I'm excluded from many of the networks, how can I go forward to get myself an internship that will take my career forward? From A. Dear A, thank you for your question. I want a tricky position to be in. We all know that to progress in a conservation career, that relevant workplace experience, whether in the public or the private sector, will really help you to go forward. Perhaps, although that is an international consensus, the exact way that people get internships does vary across the globe, and that's quite important to understand when you're identifying your target location. When you set down to um, plan for your internship, even though it seems impossible, I think the first thing you should do is write down what you'd really like to get out of it. So less kind of, I want to go to Paris, although there's nothing wrong with that, and more, um, I want to get these skills, I want to meet these people, I'd like to have had experience in, in budget and marketing, or that sort of thing. I think a lot of people, when they sit down and think about it, often want to get to be able to do a bigger range of things, and that tends to be more possible in smaller organisations. And that can help you refocus. Perhaps your first thought was you'd want to go somewhere huge and glamorous. But when you actually look at the skill set that you want to develop, somewhere slightly smaller might be the place for you. But anyway, I can't tell you what it is that you, you want to get out of the internship. The next problem that you have is one that I think is often described as cultural capital. The people have cultural capital, have access to people who can help them with their careers. Now, if you're in a, a training course associated with a large museum or heritage organisation, that training course will automatically provide you with the cultural cap- capital. In other training courses, the staff of the course will know people and they'll be able to help you get in. And we all know, well, whether we like it or not, internships and volunteering opportunities are much more likely to be given to someone who you've come across in the past or you know something about. I know it shouldn't be the case, But conservation is such an intimate career and profession. You can sort of understand why people might be nervous about putting someone in their lab that they'll sit next to for six months that they've never met before and know nothing about. So how do you go about extending your cultural capital and reassuring your prospective host that you are the person that they want to spend their time in their lab showing them how to do their techniques, how they work, how they work with their colleagues and that sort of thing? Well, this is, I think, down to networks. 
and I suspect that you may be at a structural disadvantage. I suspect that if you are outside the normal, not the normal, if you're outside the large pools of conservation, then I think you you will always struggle to get in in a way that people inside um, don't. But that doesn't mean that you don't try. It's just that mean you, means you acknowledge that you've got a harder um, hill to climb. And I just want to, to point out to our listeners that at no point do I think this is a good thing. But I think sometimes we have to acknowledge structural disadvantage when it exists in order to challenge it, both sort of sector-wide, but also in terms of you as an individual dealing with it. So what would I tell you to do? I would tell you to reach out. You find a way to communicate. If you've met anyone, get in touch with them. Don't start by sending them your 10-point list of demands. Start by sending them a connection request on one of the sort of social media sites. Or, or if you do Twitter, then have Twitter conversations with people. If you don't have a blog, if you don't do that, why not get some images of your conservation work and, and share them? You can share them on Instagram and via Instagram, of course, to other networks like the IIC Instagram page, which will take images from people. Look around at the newsletters that are out there. Sometimes it's quite hard to get published in a mainstream journal, but not so hard to get into a newsletter. Again, the news in conservation from IIC is a good one, but equally there might be newsletters in the countries that you're particularly targeting if you don't just want to build an international profile. Go and find them. Send something in. Offer to review a conference of a book. A brilliant idea might be offering to review a conference of a book for the SeaWorld podcast. After all, the SeaWorld talks to conservatives around the world. So once you've extended your contact in your networks, what you're looking for is those six degrees of separation. What are the six handshakes between you and the person you want to be shaking hands with when they welcome you to your internship? Hopefully in conservation, you can you know, narrow that down to about three handshakes of distance. And that's really where you, you just start to ask people, does anybody know of any opportunities here? Does anybody know of any opportunities there? You just start asking through the networks. Now, it is worth understanding that in some countries, you will find internships are paid and advertised and appointed quite formally, in which case follow really all the instructions that you get for job applications. In some countries, internships are longer and in some countries, they're shorter. If you know an organisation regularly has internships that are paid and that's your dream, if there's any way you can afford to be there or connected to them in some way and volunteering for them already, that would really help. Is there any virtual volunteering they, that they want? Have they got a catalogue online that needs transcription or commenting? Is there any way you can get involved in them? So once you know that you have to, I don't know, extend your cultural reach, just sit down and plot out who you know and what you feel comfortable asking them to do for you. It might be as little as asking them if they know who the name of the person you might need to get hold of. It's so much better to write, you know, dear conservator Jenny, I've always admired your work, then dear Borough Council, please can you pass this email to your conservation team. By getting direct to the right email address is something that you can benefit from. So I would just really encourage you to just try to, from wherever you are, find a way that you can connect with people and use those connections to slowly but surely get to know about the opportunities and feel your way around what's going on. I would say be prepared to go somewhere that you might not have considered to be a priority because you you know you never know what fun you can have in a conservation place. I would say be flexible in terms of timing and recognize that they are going to want to get to know you in some way. So can they can you can you call them on Skype? Can you have a chat? Is there any way you can have a look around if you see the internship advertised? Is there someone who would be the supervisor that you could call and just talk to? they're going to be as reassured about getting a sense of you as you are of getting a sense of them. So this is really where I want to finish. It's not fair that some people have more advantage in society than others. It certainly isn't. And those people doing hiring decisions should be looking at ways to make sure that opportunities are genuinely equal. But in the meantime, while we wait for a better world, and hopefully when you get your role, you will help make a better world, then you just have to make sure that you do the work that maybe parents or teaching staff are doing for other people. I know that's tough, but I'm sure you can do it. Over and out.
And as usual, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections. This time we just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who has asked us to accept PayPal donations. Because yes, we have actually been asked. So not everyone wants to support us regularly on Patreon, which is fair enough. Uh, and instead wanted the option to do a one-off donation via PayPal. And now there is a PayPal button on our website uh, where you can do just that. So uh, thanks very much to everyone who has requested it and uh, who is even considering giving us some money. Like, thanks so much. As you may know, we don't get paid for this. So uh, anything that you contribute really does help and means that we can keep the show running. So thank you so much uh, if you're considering or if you already have or anything at all, really. Um, thanks. Thanks even for just listening. You're all great. Um, but yes, yeah, so there is now a PayPal donation button on our website if you fancy. And we're also available on more platforms in terms of where we're distributing the show. So we recently uh, joined Acast and Spotify as well. So there are more ways of listening to us other than iTunes. So um, hopefully that means that you can share us with more people. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, guys. You're all awesome. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Wendy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening with Seaward, and you'll be listening to Megan Smith, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for a tech episode about the Arduino. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at the Seaward Podcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.